0: Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to A Higher Branch. This week's episode, we meet with Dr. Patrick Waynes. Now, it's been nearly 12 months since many of us were evicted from our offices to start working from home. And thanks to digital tools such as Zoom and Google Documents and Teams, the transition has been smoother than expected. While teleworking has allowed us to work from anywhere, many of us have become distant with face to face interactions, which made me think how is this new way of working affecting our basic human behaviors of communicating? So today I've invited human behavior expert Dr. Patrick onto the show to dissect the social and behavioral implications we face due to these digital tools. Now, Patrick is an expert in relationships, human motivation, body language, and communication. He has a Bachelor of Science in Communications, Associate Degrees in Dramatic Arts, Media and Speech, Scripting and Communications, as well as Advanced Hypnotherapy. Trust me, this guy is absolutely fascinating. Now, over the years, he has provided insights and analysis to major news outlets across the world, such as Fox News, CNN, BBC. And today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by him to delve into the effect teleworking has on our personal and professional relationships, how digital tools are impacting our children's social skills, and the seven emotions that are holding us hostage right now and how you can free yourself from them. So let's dive in. Patrick, welcome to higher Branch. Thank you. Now, Patrick, talking to you offline, I sense that we're going to go off topic quite a bit because you're absolutely fascinating. Your bio is incredible. You're originally from Australia, but now you're living between Miami and LA. So you've been on stage, you've been on radio, television. You were the youngest talk show host in Australian history at 23, and you interviewed Bob Hawke. You're an expert in the areas of sexuality, human motivation, addiction, body language, persuasion, communication and women's issues. This is your area of expertise and you've studied it, not just at university, but you've also studied human behavior. You've run research projects yourself. Now I'm going to put something up on the screen for those people that are listening. We're actually doing this via Zoom. So I want to just put a model up on the screen. For people that attended Upgrade Your Life 2020 and 2019 will know that I share with them an operating system for life. Now, I'm a systems guy in business and I've developed some incredible system in banking and finance law but I'm also a life strategist. And in business, it starts with strategy. If you have the wrong strategy, it doesn't matter what you do. So I also have a life strategy because a lot of the times I was asked, why is your business so successful? How did you accelerate your business so quickly? And it was a humble response at the time. This is many years ago. I said, look, I have an operating system for living made up of two frameworks. One of those frameworks is the eight areas of life, which I say fills eight fundamental human needs. The reason why I wanted to put this up is because a lot of people want behavioral change. They want a change in their life. Just about everyone you meet, whether they're successful or not, they need to progress. They need to evolve. We have a human need for evolution, for growth, exactly. And you'll notice one of those eight areas is learning, right? And it fills a fundamental human need for growth. It's there in the orange circle. I see that on the Um, left, yeah. What we're doing now is imparting knowledge. People are listening to this podcast, learning, and from that learning, they have the potential for growth because my second framework is about essentially behavioral change. How do you achieve behavioral change? People want change in their life, but then they wake up every day and do the same thing. You can't get behavioral change without identity change. And that's what you're all about. Now, I'm fascinated with all your books, by the way. Your website is patrickwayness.com. That's dot com, And you have many eBooks on there and across multiple areas. Your approach is all about identity change, isn't it? Behavioral change for identity change. Who am I? Uh, it's
1: interesting you've summed it up that way. And that is correct. Although I don't label it that way, it's definitely accurate. And I would like to reference the work of Dr. Maxwell Maltz. It's called Psycho-Cybernetics. I think was written in the 50s, and he primarily actually raised that point. He was trying to say that everything is around identity. And and I agree with that, and I'm not the only person to agree with it, and it's been verified so many times. The way you see yourself will determine not only your behaviour, but your thoughts, your emotions, and the way that you interact with people. So if you shift the way you perceive yourself, you will ultimately change your results. You cannot avoid changing your results by changing your identity. Let's take the example of someone who's suffering from a disorder of such as body dysmorphia. Yes. Body dysmorphia is where I see my body as being flawed one way or another. It's too big, it's too small, it's too short, whatever's wrong with it. That's part of my identity. And further to that, I'm saying the value of myself is directly determined by my body, now that becomes another part of my identity. So my value identity is my body, and my body is also part of my identity. So that's a fantastic observation, Sam. But yes, if you want to engage in behavioral change, look at your identity. When I'm working with clients one-on-one, the first question I ask is, what is it you want that you don't yet have? And then I can say it can be anything. It can be money, whatever it is. And then I'll find out what's the belief or what's the emotion that you're experiencing. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe you want to overcome depression. I say, what do you really want to feel? I want to feel secure and confident. What's blocking your security and confidence? I experience anxiety. And I say, anxiety is the feeling that your world is out of control, coupled with the attempt to try to control that, which you can't. In what way is your world out of control? And when did you first experience anxiety? When I take them back to that originating event, what will we find out that there is a subconscious identity? And that subconscious identity can be expressed in words sometimes, such as, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. I don't belong. I'm an outsider, etc. It can be, I'm stupid. It can be, I don't deserve this. It can be, I'm smart, but I'm ugly, which is something that a lot of girls experience. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if girls have sisters, sometimes there'll be the one sister that gets all the attention for being really pretty and the other girl will get all the attention for being really smart and they'll both go up with various challenges. One saying, I'm only known for my looks. The other one saying, I'm not known for my looks. I'm only known for my intelligence. But again, I'm just using this as an example to say that I support your argument or your principle that if you want to change anything in your life, you've got to start with your identity. And that means how do you see and perceive yourself How do you define yourself? How do you distinguish yourself? What is it that makes you an SUV? Now, in America, SUV stands for sports utility vehicle. I use the term SUV special, unique and valuable. What is it that sets you apart? And this would apply to business too. If you're consulting with a company, you might say to them, Sam, what makes you SUV? What makes your company special, unique and valuable? So again, You've got to know who you are and the seven sages of Delphi inscribe the words, know thyself. Yes. And again, that comes to who am I? And you start off with how do I perceive myself? I've actually done this exercise in corporate workshops with companies such as Shell Oil and Orange Theory Fitness Executives where I say, write down your image, the way you see yourself, the way you perceive yourself. Now write down the same thing about your mother and about your father. Now look at what's in common. And I get them again to explore a little bit deeper to get in touch with their own identity and even to find or tap into the parts of their identity that they are denying, negating or running away from. And again, it's about getting to that place of really seeing yourself fully and then saying, what part of me do I want to change and what part of me do I need to embrace? And where do I want to go with this identity? What is my ultimate goal? And you've summed it up beautifully. I call them value points, but I see them as core values.
0: Yeah. The eight areas of life came out of a model I created after my first book, A Higher Branch, and where I use the metaphor, of the eight trees of life. And about a young boy who gets lost and meets a mysterious old man who guides him back home. And it was a metaphor for finding your identity in these eight areas of life
1: ah, and, interesting
0: uh, yeah so it, it came out of that so whenever i i work one-on-one with people as well and i get them to define their identity in these eight areas first of all your health your love life your family your work your friendships learning wealth and charity my thesis is that each one of those fill a fundamental human need, starting with energy intimacy support fulfillment belonging growth freedom and contribution because I've met a lot of corporate people last three decades that I've been in banking and finance law who will neglect some of these fundamental human needs on the promise that one day they will stop and actually live their life because they redline at work and they redline when it comes to their wealth creation, but then they neglect their relationship, their love, they neglect their families. Now, a lot of people won't admit that they neglect these areas. I say, oh, no, I'm there for my family. But if you're spending 70% of your time at work, and more importantly, 70% of your energy and your attention bandwidth on work, mate, you're not really present in these other areas. So your identity is attached to that area of your life. And what happens when the CEO or the founder sells the company or resigns? They have an identity crisis because they haven't lived life in the other areas, then what
1: happens is that they've lost purpose because if their prior or pre-existing meaning and purpose was the work and whatever challenges they had within that work, once that work ends, they're in this limbo which says, I don't know who I am. I don't know what my meaning is
0: anymore. I don't know what my purpose is. Absolutely. And even, I use CEOs, but mothers, right? Mothers for our generation, our mothers, when the, the kids left home, they had an identity crisis because their identity was wrapped up in the tree of family. That was how they defined their identity. And of course, it came crashing down. A lot of mothers experienced depression after their kids flew the coop and they were just left ruddlers. So when I sit people down, I put this model in front of them and I say, who do you want to become in each one of these areas of life? And it's critical as well. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Guy Winch about how to fix a broken heart. And we discussed that if you define your identity in these eight areas and not just in the area of love, then when you do have a breakup, you don't experience an identity crisis. The breakup or the heartbreak comes from defining your life or defining your identity just as a partner or in a relationship.
1: Yes. That, of course, if your identity is attached to only one thing, if I am only a human behavior expert... Or if I am only a mother or only a father, if I am only the job I have or the title, or if I'm only a rich person in wealth, or if I'm only a philanthropist, then that's a problem. I I actually teach that we have multiple passions. We don't just have one passion, that we can get meaning and purpose from multiple things. And I think this is a great model because you're encouraging people to look at life from a much more 360 perspective rather than just, I am the title, of whatever work I do, and I think that COVID, the pandemic, was so extraordinary in the way that it flattened us, literally flattened us, where we were stuck at home. And now you're saying, "Who am I? What am I doing? Is this really what I want to be doing? What should I be doing? Where's my meaning? Where's my purpose? Where does joy come from?" Etc. Yeah.
0: So you, you've got a great model, Sam. That's fantastic. Thank you, thank you, Patrick. But I really want to now apply your expertise. For some of these areas of life, I've gone onto your website and you have some incredible books on there, especially the eBooks. Absolutely love them. And for people that are listening right now, just take note patrickwayness.com and visit the website after this, because there's some really practical eBooks and audio books. There's so many here on so many different areas, but let's start with say- uh, The one on seven emotions,
1: neutralize the seven emotions. So- I actually created this audiobook in response to the pandemic. It's not that the pandemic called me, but it was a conversation with one of my clients who said to me, oh, you know what? I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm feeling really tired. And I said, Chris, we're in the middle of a pandemic. What's wrong with you? Of course you're gonna feel tired. That heaviness is grief. That heaviness is a sense of loss. It's coming from a sense of sadness. Sadness is triggered by a sense of loss. Even if you quit a job that you wanted to quit, you're still going to experience a sense of grieving or a sense of loss because something has come to an end and it's a change. Anytime there's a change, there's a sense of loss because we do tend to get attached to things. Even at the end of a season, at the end of autumn or the end of spring or summer, we can still have a sense of sadness because something that we've become accustomed to has finished. Anyway, so I said to him, look, Chris, we should get together and we should see what we can do to help people. And I said, I'm going to put together two things. I'm going to create a guided meditation to help people through this stressful and anxious time. And I'm going to create, record, narrate an audiobook on neutralizing the seven emotions that are holding you hostage right now. And the top two emotions are ones that tend to come up in life all the time. And the, the one that is the most common is fear. And anxiety. They're in the same umbrella fear and anxiety. Fear is when we're expecting something bad to happen. We think something bad's gonna happen that's gonna result in pain. Anxiety is much more of a generalized feeling where you feel like your world's out of control. You don't know what to do. And then perhaps you're trying to control something that you can't. Most of us experience anxiety because we're often trying to control other people, we're trying to control our partner. Our spouse, our boss, our team members, our children, our boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend. And then only when we get to the stage of enlightenment, in this case, I'm using the word enlightenment, of a realization of, oh, I can't control anyone else. It's hard enough for me to control myself. Perhaps I should put all my focus on the things I can control. What are those things that you can control, Patrick? I can focus on controlling my thoughts and my emotions. Because my thoughts will trigger emotions and also vice versa. So you want to look at and say, what am I thinking about life right now? What am I thinking about who I am, my identity, as you pointed out? What am I thinking about my self-worth, my self-value? What do I think and feel and believe about myself and the world around me? Because we don't create 100% of our reality. Our reality also creates us. So if you're in a bad situation, you need to extricate yourself. If you're in a toxic job, a toxic relationship, you can't sit there and go, "Um, all I need to do is go on and the person will change. No, they won't. (laughs) You need to get out of the relationship. I'm so glad
0: you called that out because it's so much focus on saying it's not the circumstances, it's your reaction to the circumstances, but... I say sometimes you need to get out. Well, that's
1: of- partially true, but it's ridiculous to make it anything an absolute. So if I put you in front of radiation, are you going to say, "Oh no, it's the way I react to my circumstances"? It's been proven from study after study that the more you expose yourself to certain things, the more you'll be impacted by them. There's a fantastic, really basic study that was done, and this is just regarding words as an example. They take a group of college students, or as we say, uni students, they film them coming into the room, then they sit them down and they get them to read a couple of pages. In those pages are interspersed words such as old, frail, weak, slow, fatigued, and then they say, okay, thank you for reading this, and then they ask them to leave and they film them leaving. How do you think they leave? old, fatigued, frail. They change their actual physical posture and the way they move changes based on what we call seeding. I'm planting seeds in you. The other thing that I teach, and I think this is a really valuable lesson is, yes, it is critical about the way that we choose to respond to our circumstances, but be smart. If those circumstances are toxic and poisonous, get away from them because what I teach is it's much harder to lift up someone that's dark and negative. It takes a lot more light to fill up the room, but it's very easy to switch off the light. So if you think you're a positive person, and let's say you're a woman, and here I go being sexist, women tend to fall in love with the potential of a man. They meet Sam and they say, oh, Sam's going to be great, and I'm going to get him to change what he wears and the shoes that he wears. I'm going to get him to eat differently. He's not going to smoke. He's not going to drink as much. He's not going to go out every Friday night. Now, they're not doing that really because they want to control you. They're doing that because they believe that's in your best interest and you'll be such a greater person when you change and you get closer to your potential. But what happens is they realize how hard it is to actually change you. Mm -hmm. So if you're a positive person and you think you can go and rescue a man or a woman and bring them into the light, that's not going to work. It takes so much more energy to lift someone up out of the darkness, out of the well, than it does to actually just walk in the light. So – Again, I'm saying you've got to be aware of what your circumstances are and look what it does to your body. If you're not thinking about what it does to your thoughts, notice when you are with someone, what happens inside your body? Let's say Sam gets together with his best friend. I promise you that you probably have a sense of either feeling very comfortable, very relaxed. You can just speak your mind. You can speak your truth. Or perhaps you get excited and you're passionate around your best friend. Yeah. Then I say, now tell me about the person you can't stand being around and notice what happens to your body. And you go near that person and perhaps you feel anxiety, feel a knot in your stomach, there's tension in your neck, there's tension in your shoulders. So don't try and do this thing of, I can control all of my circumstances. No, you cannot. And that's another argument that I've had with many of these teachers of the secret who believe you create 100% of your reality. And I say, are you really telling me that all those, I don't know if it was millions of people in the Bahamas created that hurricane that devastated the entire island? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that in different parts of the world, the tsunamis that wiped out islands and wiped out people, do you believe the people created that with their thoughts? I don't. So teach it's about balance, Sam.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say, like my parents left Beirut, Lebanon in the early 70s to escape the circumstances of war. Now, if they just sat there with the notion that was peddled in the secret, that you just wish for things and not take action, then they would have been a victim maybe of the war. So you need to have the courage to take action to change your circumstances. But There was something you said right at the beginning of this point, and that is, it's about control. Now, for people who are listening, what are the signs that you are being controlled without realising? And how do you stop people from controlling you?
1: Two great questions. The first way to know if you're being controlled is if you don't have either freedom of expression or you're constantly thinking that you have to do something different or work harder to get the approval or acceptance of someone else.
0: Wow. This can apply... In, if we go back to the eight areas of life, this can apply with your lover in your relationship, your partner, sure, with yes, your family, at work, work, colleagues, yeah. in the tree of friendship, with your friends, yes, it's not just in a romantic relationship,
1: it also applies to religion. So, the simplest way to put it is look at again your identity, what do you believe about yourself? Now, if you believe that there's something wrong with you and you constantly need to change that's different to growth and learning if you think that you constantly have to do better be better have more etc what's the motivation is it because you want to grow and learn or is it because you think there's something wrong with you so religions have been very skilled for thousands of years or however long at controlling people by saying you see sam there's something wrong with you you're not worthy of god's love and you're not worthy of this and you're not worthy of that you need to do this and you need to do that now if your audience, I believe from what you've told me, that your audience are into learning, they're open-minded, then I'm going to challenge you to even look at some of the teachings of Eastern mysticism. And in the East, they don't do what the Western religions do, which is talk about original sin. In the East, they say you need to dissolve your ego, you need to be selfless, you need to deny and negate your desires for gratification, for sex, etc what are they really saying to you? They're saying to you, you're not good enough. They're saying to you, there's something wrong with you. You have to get rid of your ego. You have to become selfless. You can't be self-centered. You can't be selfish. You can't have desires. You can't be attached to desires. You can't have lust. You can't have sex. You go, wait a minute. None of these ideals are livable because we're actually primates. We're actually human. And even though we like to think we are higher in the order versus compared to other animals, which we might be, We still have certain desires. So again, when you ask the question, how do you know if you're being controlled? How do you stop people from controlling you? Yes. How do people treat you? And if someone's constantly saying to you, you've got to be better, you've got to do more, I know what's best for you, I know better than you, I'm the only one that will ever love you, for example, then you're being controlled. I was just watching a really interesting video the other day, and it was, I can't remember the guy's name, because I think it was Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson, the comedian, the English comedian. And he said something ridiculously profound, and usually comedians are actually very profound. And he said that he believes the three most precious things in life, and the first two are like food, water, shelter, and the third is freedom of expression. And I thought, that's really bizarre, because I wrote this in a book 15 years ago about the keys to happiness. And I said, one of the keys to happiness is freedom of expression. Now, freedom of expression isn't about being an activist or walking around and protesting and having a placard. It's about being able to talk to your friends and say, no, I don't agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. Listen, you can have your opinion. This is my opinion. And here's why I have my opinion. Freedom of expression is about you not constantly being controlled and not being told what words you can use and what words you can't use. And I just thought that was extremely insightful, particularly coming from a comedian who says, freedom of expression is so precious. If you want to stop people from controlling you, look at the ways they are controlling you. From where do you get your value? What do you do to be liked, approved of, accepted, embraced and welcomed and to be part of the tribe, whatever that tribe is, your family, your tribe at work, your family tribe, your blood tribe, and then your partner tribe, maybe it's your wife and your child. So look at who do you constantly try to be so that you can be liked and accepted? What are you constantly trying to change about yourself? And if you're the person that takes a whip and whips yourself on the back, constantly telling yourself you're bad, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're limited, you're this, you're that, then ask yourself, who put that there? Because whoever put that there is the person that's controlling you. And then the way to get out of the controlling behavior once you've identified it is to say, from where does my value come? Who am I? Again, my identity, from where does my value come? What distinguishes me? And do I want to keep living this way where people tell me that there's something wrong with me, that they constantly try to make me feel Guilty, that's called throwing guilt, and you're the guilt catcher. Or they try to tell me that I should be ashamed of myself. And I'm not saying to throw out all morality, I'm saying look for the balance because you will find in life that there are people who gain their security and their sense of self worth by putting you down, by telling you that there's something wrong with you and you're not good enough. And you're lucky to have me as a friend, or you're lucky to have me as a partner, or or as a wife, or a husband, or whatever. Also, I think that we are constantly controlled. There's what we call the authoritarian model, which is I know better than you what's best for you. You have to be obedient to me. You have to do what you're told. And you can't trust yourself. There's the other thing. I'm glad you asked this question about control. Do you trust yourself? Do you trust your own judgment? Mm -hmm. Do you accept full responsibility and accountability for everything that happens in your life? Because if you do, no one else can control you. But if you're depending upon others to tell you whether you should be
0: happy today or not, whether you're good enough today or not, you are being controlled. Wow. Okay. What you said has the ramifications, not just in personal life, but as a lawyer, there's no coincidence that the constitutions in most Commonwealth countries and Western world countries have individual, the protection of individual freedoms and the freedom of expression.
1: Like in America, yes, because in America, one of the amendments is the freedom of speech. People, unfortunately, try to apply that to everything at work, and they say, no, freedom of speech, that the government can't control your speech, that the government can't tell you what to say and what not to say. And that's a big part of freedom of expression, of being able to speak from your heart, to speak your own truth, meaning what you've experienced and what you think and what you feel and the way you see the world. So that's a great point, Sam.
0: Yeah, yeah. And some really good practical tips there about how to stop people from controlling you. And it's a simple test, really. How do you feel around that person? Do you feel like you are free to express whatever's in your heart and in your mind? And I I just love that. This is great for people to recognize whoever is listening now, think
1: about your group of friends. Which friends do you go, I love to hang out with them because when I hang out with them, I become energized or I can just relax around them. Yes. And I feel like I can just be me. And we don't have to go into the definition of what it means to just be me. Most people recognize what that means. Who are those people where you feel like, you know what, when I'm with Jane and with Paul, I feel like I can just be me and I feel relaxed and I feel they accept me. They laugh at me. They laugh with me sometimes, but I can be me. And I know that I'm safe. I feel trusted. I feel that I can express myself. Versus when I go and see my boss, I immediately get a knot in my stomach. Or I, don't, I recognize that my shoulders become really tight and there's neck pain because I feel that he's judging me or whatever it is. So just get in touch. What feelings are you experiencing in your body around these people?
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned those two things. So the tree of friendship, tree of work. So in chapter seven of my book, Friendship, talk about that exact point. But also when it comes to work, it's a message for business leaders and senior executives out there that are listening. The best way to create a great culture is to give your people the permission to be themselves at work. Yes. one One of the reasons that I attribute our success, we've gone from number four to number one in our industry within five years and the reason is apparent if you walk through our office and you'll get a sense how our people sit in an office chair or walk around in our office is exactly how they feel when they're at home. They feel comfortable to be themselves. Now, we've created that environment because we didn't want our staff to come and have a meeting with us and feel like they have this knot in their stomach, oh, I have to pretend to be someone else. And it's so critical to organizations' culture to have people feel like they can be themselves. What does that mean? It means to dress true to their personality, to decorate their workstation in any way they want. Simple little things. But most importantly, in your interactions with them, you need to be authentic. You need to be yourself. Because when you are yourself, it gives them the permission to be themselves. But when you project this authoritarian vibe I know what's best. Yeah, I'm the boss. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's something that can be taught. I grew up in a household that was very humble and very empathetic. So It can be taught.
1: It can be taught. So if we're talking about empathy and compassion, I actually do workshops on empathy and compassion. And the workshops that I do are extraordinary because they're not the typical kind of workshops. I'll get a group of executives together, and it could be 30 executives. And during the day, there'll be a time when they've cried together. That's the level of trust and vulnerability that they end up bringing. And so what I have to do is create that space where they say, we feel completely safe here to open up. One of my most rewarding memories of a fantastic workshop is when a woman said, not to me, But at the end of the workshop, we're wrapping it up, so we're still in the workshop, she turns around to the CEO and says, I feel like I can really trust you now. She was an executive saying this to the CEO of a company, I feel like I can really trust you now and I can come to you. That was at the end of the workshop. Now
0: you've achieved something in that workshop. How do you teach? Empathy and Uh, compassion. Because the question is practically for someone who is a family member or a partner or a friend We've talked about the flip side, how do you know when you're being controlled, but if you're the other person, how do you make people around you feel good about themselves, feel comfortable, whether it's at work, with your friends, with your partner?
1: All right, so we're talking about two different things, and I'll answer both of them. There's a difference between how do I make this person feel safe to be themselves, and another one, how do I express empathy and compassion? I see them as two key points. So first, empathy and compassion, let's define them. Sympathy is when you are looking down on someone. You're actually expressing pity and you say, I heard about your loss. I'm, I'd like to extend my sympathies. And you're really looking down on that person. Not in a bad way, but you're above. You're saying, you've had a bad experience. You've had a loss. I express my sympathy. I'm actually looking down on you. Yes. Empathy is where we're both on the same level. And I say to you, I can feel your pain. I can understand your pain intellectually and I can actually feel your pain. So there's intellectual empathy. There's emotional empathy. Emotional is where I feel it. Intellectual is where I understand it. So we're now both on the same level. Now here comes compassion. When I'm doing a workshop, I do the following. When I'm explaining the third one, compassion, in my suit, I get down on my knees and I say, this is compassion. We're both on the ground and I'm going to lift you up. So I feel your pain and I'm going to do whatever I can to alleviate your pain. I might ask you, I might say, I can feel this pain. There's no way I can understand your pain because I'm not you, but I would like to understand it and I'd like to help you and I'd like to support you. What can I do? They might say, there's nothing you can do, or they might say, I just need to be alone for a while, or they might say, I need someone to do this. You can also often say, I'd like to do the following. I'd like to drive you home for the next couple of days. I'd like to spend some time with you, whatever it is. Compassion is feeling someone else's pain and taking action to relieve the person of that pain. Now, that's the definition. Now you say, come on, Patrick, how do you teach this? How do you teach empathy and compassion? How do you help someone to be empathetic and compassionate? By first identifying what it is that prevents us from being compassionate. And do you know what it is? No. You're going to be shocked at the answer. It's be- when everything for you is going so well And you're on a high, it's very hard for you to express compassion for someone else. Wow. Think about this. When you're on a real high and everything's going great, your career's going great and everything's going great and someone comes in and says, oh, such and such happened, but you're focused on how great everything is for you. It's very hard to express compassion. Usually we become more compassionate as we've had more life experience because we've experienced pain. So the more pain that you've experienced and you recall that pain, the easier it is to say that person's in pain. A classic example, which maybe Aussies won't relate to, but the Dick Cheney, who was a vice president in America a few years ago, ended up expressing and experiencing compassion when he found out his daughter was lesbian. Not before. But when his daughter was lesbian and it was that close to him, then he could have compassion for people who are judged or condemned for their sexuality. So if you want to learn empathy and compassion, think about yourself. Recall times when you were flat on the floor, when you fell down face first, when you thought things were hopeless, when you thought nothing could get better, when you experienced a loss, your pet died, Your best friend moved away. You got dumped. You got rejected. Think about those times and recall the pain. Because when you recall that pain, then you realize, even though I'm feeling high because I just got a promotion or whatever, there's Sam and something bad has happened to him. I'm thinking about the pain I experienced. Yeah, pain is real. Now, let me go ahead and say, Sam, I'm feeling some of your pain. I want to understand it. I'm here to listen. I'm here. I see you. I hear you, I'm listening to you. How can I support you? What do you want to share? What can I do to help? So that's empathy and compassion.
0: It explains why the people that give the most to charities are the ones that actually don't have a great life. It's the ones that are experiencing hardship in their life. Yeah. We subconsciously may be making the people close to us our friends, our family, our partner, our work colleagues feel uncomfortable about themselves and they just don't feel good around you and you're pushing them away and you're thinking to yourself, why is that person drifting away from me? What can I do to make them feel good about themselves? What? Well, because people do things consciously and subconsciously, obviously. So of course. that feeling of being controlled, the other person may not know that they're controlling <laughs> you. Correct, correct. Yeah. So-,
1: so the secret to help people to be themselves around you You have to be yourself. If you accept yourself, you're not going to have a problem accepting other people. Yes. It's much easier for me to allow you to be you when I'm comfortable with who I am. But if I reject myself, if I reject who I am, if I reject my identity, my thoughts, my beliefs, my desires, my dreams, I'm going to do the same thing to you. So number one, focus again on yourself and practice accepting yourself, practice being compassionate to yourself, practice being patient with yourself, practice forgiving yourself, practice learning from your mistakes. And then when you see someone making mistakes, it's much easier to communicate with them. Now, I do a whole workshop on this and I call it building or creating team cohesiveness. The foundation of team cohesiveness is about helping people to be themselves And that's done through building the foundation of trust. To build the foundation of trust, you must be willing to be authentic and vulnerable. And you go, well, what does that cheesy word authentic really mean? It simply means living according to your values, not pretending that I value what the company values. If you don't value what the company values, go work for another company. You don't belong there. Spot on. My values are in alignment with the company's values. If they're not Don't get together. Don't marry someone. Don't date someone. Don't work with someone. Don't commit to someone if your values clash. That's critical. So your values have got to be the same. So I'm authentic when I'm living in alignment with my values. Vulnerable means I'm willing to say I'm human. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'll correct it. I'll learn from it. There's some examples of the kind of phrases you would use when you're expressing vulnerability. I teach workshops on vulnerability for companies and I'll say to them at the beginning, I promise you by the end of this workshop today in eight hours time, you will know each other so much better. You'll feel so much closer, more bonded and more united than you ever have in the next eight hours together. And then I get them in a circle at the end and I say, everyone, arms around each other. This was pre-pandemic, obviously. I say, arms around each other. Now, look across at everyone in the circle. Look at their eyes. Notice how much softer everyone's face is. Notice how much softer everyone's eyes are. Have they changed or have you changed or both? This happened in a workshop that I did in LA where there was a lady who was sharing her own personal tribulations and experiences and how she overcame them. And people were shocked because they didn't know about it. But then what happened was they all were saying, we're so proud of you and we support you. And she was getting what she really needed during that time if they'd been around, but she didn't open. The point is she realized, wow, when I open up and I'm vulnerable, that means I'm open to potential injury, potential rejection. I can actually get the opposite. Instead of being rejected, I can actually receive encouragement, support, acknowledgement, recognition, praise, additional insights. So to help your team to be themselves, you've got to be yourself, live in alignment with your values, be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to admit that you don't know everything and allow other people to express themselves freely. And that's the second point. Conflict is a big part of freedom of expression and helping people to be themselves. Now, what I mean by that is, and I'm sure you've done something similar based on the success and your models. You've got your team together. There's a meeting because you want to design the new model, the new iPhone, or you want to create a new promotion, a new campaign. And you say, okay, let's have some ideas. Sam starts to talk. And we go, no, Sam, no, 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 no. No, that's not going to work, Sam. Then we go on to John. I'm not so sure. John, Mary, what have you got? Yeah, we're getting closer, Mary. And you've gone around the room and then you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. But wait a minute, Sam never got to fully express his idea. Neither did Mary or Jane because they got shut down. But if I say, Sam, what's your idea? And you start saying, and you go, I don't know, Sam. I'm not sure about that idea. And I start debating it with you. And we both get very passionate, but we're not attacking each other. But we're passionately arguing the idea, debating the merits and the value of the idea And we go all the way around the room and everyone's done that. Whoever had ideas has presented them and they feel they've been fully heard and their idea is being dissected and properly considered. And then we say, okay, guys, we've got five conflicting ideas, but we've got to make a decision because today's the deadline. Now, we're going to put up to a vote. We've heard everyone's ideas. Does everyone feel that their idea has been fully heard? Yes. Okay. Let's have some voting. Now we're down to two ideas. We go, okay, guys, we've got a tiebreaker here. We've got idea one from Sam and idea two from Bianca. Which one are we going to choose? And then, and we still can't get a tiebreaker. I go, okay, as the leader, I'm going to have to make the tiebreaking decision. I make the tiebreaking decision. Now we walk out of the room and we say, okay, we need everyone to commit to this. Why is everyone going to commit? They're going to commit because they've been fully heard. But if Sam's idea and Patrick's idea and Bianca's ideas weren't properly heard, we're not going to really commit to the idea. We weren't allowed to be ourselves. We weren't allowed to express the idea. Or worse, we expressed the idea and we got attacked personally. Never make it personal. Debate the merits. And I say to people, who invented the iPhone? People go, oh, it was that guy, Steve Jobs. They go, no, it wasn't. It was 1,000 people that created the iPhone. Do you really think they had a consensus? And That's what I have to tell companies because companies say, we've got to have consensus. I've got consensus. You can't even get consensus with your wife. Do you seriously think you're going to get consensus (laughs) with with 80 people in your company? No way. You just want to make sure that everyone's heard, everyone feels understood (laughs) and validated. Validate the people. If you validate your people, your team, if you listen to your team, if you understand your team they will be themselves around you and they won't have a problem coming to you and saying, I'm really pissed about this. That's an American expression. You know, I'm really
0: angry about this or whatever. I love what you just said. And it can apply. Those same principles can apply in a relationship as a parent with your kids, make them feel like you're choosing a holiday, make them feel like they can express freely what they want in all your human interactions, not just work.
1: Imagine if you say to your kids and you've got teenage kids and you know that they've got an identity crisis, coming back to what you said at the beginning of the show, that teenagers are going through an identity crisis, that they don't want you involved, but they really do want you involved, even though they say to you, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to talk to you about it. They want you to push them and, and get it out of them. Imagine yeah. if you say to them, okay, tell me what your idea is about summer holiday. Where do you want to go? Well, I want to go to Santa. And I go, Why? Why do you want to go to that? I don't like that. But come on, why? Because I can do this and I can do that. And then my friend John, and I listen to all of Jane's ideas, Jane's 15. Yeah. I go, Jane, I get it. I understand. And I can see why that's really important to you. Here's the challenge we face your brother wants to do this. Your mother wants to do this. Your grandma wants to do this. I can't please everyone. Here's what we're going to do. But at least Jane feels that she's been heard, understood, and validated. I just made that one up now. I'm going to use it thanks to (laughs) Sam McCool. See, mate, I should talk to you more often. You inspire me. So listen to people. Let your team feel that they're heard, understood, and validated, and practice empowering them. Let them make some decisions on their own. Don't sit there and micromanage. If you say to people, okay, John and Sam, this is your project. You've got until December the 21st. This is what I expect. I'm giving it to you. Don't come to me. Just give me what you've come up with. And you walk away and you go, great, he's given us all this responsibility. He's allowing us to come up with your ideas. I'm enabling you in a positive way. I'm not enabling you to do drugs. I'm enabling you to act on your own, to be autonomous and independent and to come up with some ideas. And then I'd say, okay, give me the presentation and get ready because I'm going to challenge you. Now I'm really building you up. I'm saying I believe in you. I'm empowering you and I'm enabling you. And I'm saying, I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to hear you. And I trust you. I may not agree with you, but I'm going to trust you. And if it doesn't work, guess what? It's on you because it was your idea. So you've got to make it work. Come on, Sam, you can do it. It's about building belief in people, that you really believe in your team. And I'm actually doing an interview for another podcast next Monday. And this woman came to me because she read an article I wrote on expectations. It's called the Pygmalion Effect. If I expect you to succeed, you will succeed. As long as I can convince you, that's my expectation and why I have that expectation. I expect that Sam McCool is going to succeed, not just because he does have intelligence and experience, oh, because I know he's going to apply himself. Because I know, Sam, by the end of the year in our class, you're going to have worked really hard. So I expect that you will succeed. I expect that you'll get an A without a doubt, but I know you're going to work hard for that. Now, I'm just telling you, that's my expectation of you. You're going to fulfill that expectation. But if I walk into a classroom and I say, I've got to tell you students that this is the toughest class and probably 65% of you will fail. What are you going to do? You're going to turn and go, bloody hell, is that me? Am I going to fail? Is he going to fail? Now you're thinking you're failing. You're not thinking you're winning. You're not thinking you're succeeding. You're thinking you're failing because I've just put in The seed that says, expect to fail. If I say, I expect that everyone in this class is going to succeed, not just because you're intelligent, but because I know you're going to apply yourself, you're going to work hard and we're going to do this together. I've created the expectation. I've created the vision that we're going to do this. And that's a big part of success. Comes back to your identity. Have you done
0: anything on Carol Dweck's Two Models of a Fixed Mindset and a Growth Mindset? I know what you're talking about, but I'd love to hear it because that was uh, going to be one of my questions.
1: This was was life-changing even for me. And it just blew me away. So she has a book that she wrote, I think about seven years ago, 2013, called Rethinking Positive Thinking. And through 20 years of research, she shows that positive thinking doesn't actually work on its own. You need to do more than positive think You need to think also about what could go wrong and what could go wrong in you. So she found that women who went to a weight loss center, the group that had the greatest success were not the women who just visualized and imagined losing weight, but the women who also imagined and visualized the obstacles they were going to face, such as, I have a real challenge with self-control. I know that Friday nights I go to the fridge because I'm all alone and I sit there and I just eat a tub of ice cream because I'm bloody lonely. And then they go, okay, how am I going to get around that? I better take some action. I'm going to call my friend Sam and get him to come over with me on Friday nights and hang out with me. So they found that the women who thought also about the obstacles within themselves, the internal obstacles had yeah. greater success. Anyway, so the fixed mindset is, and this is something that I've had for a long time in certain areas of my life, what I'm born with is all I have. The hand that has been dealt to me is all I have. I'm innately intelligent, I can never get any better, and I better not embrace a challenge because I could look stupid, and if I make a mistake that means there's something wrong with me, that defines who I am. A failure and a mistake defines who I am. That's a fixed mindset. But the growth mindset comes along and says, you're challenging me? Great, I'm willing to learn. And it's okay if I make a mistake, it's okay if I fall because I'll get back up again and I'll learn from it. And the mistake doesn't define me and failure doesn't define me because I learned from those mistakes. And I know that with energy, effort, focus, and strategies, I can keep growing and I can keep learning. One of Sam McCool's eight values, I can keep learning, I can keep growing, and I can get better. I can get smarter. I know I'll never be an Albert Einstein. I don't need to be an Albert Einstein, but I can become smarter than I am. I can become more skilled at racquetball or tennis or whatever, cricket, whatever I'm playing, if I'm willing to do the hard work, if I'm willing to apply myself. And I think that's a great model that changes the way that you look at yourself, because that goes right back to what we started with at the beginning of our podcast. If you want to make behavioral change, what's your identity? Shift your identity to, instead of this is who I am, this is who I've always been, I can never be anyone else, I can never change, to, I can be anything I want if I'm willing to do the work, if I'm willing to get past
0: myself. Absolutely. And I was going to say the obstacle to that identity change is often people are chasing outcomes. So they have outcome based goals or process based goals. So to give you an example, when I first started running many years ago, being an office worker sitting at a desk, I just had enough one day and I thought, I'm going to start running. Now, I didn't chase a goal. Right. I didn't say I'm going to run a marathon. Run five,
1: five kilometers, yeah.
0: Yeah, or I'm going to lose this much weight or I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. three days a week. That wasn't my goal. My goal was I just had it in my head. I, I want to become a runner. And I was inspired to do so because of a documentary I saw on runners And I remember when I first started, I could barely run 200 meters, I'd puff out, then I'd start walking again. So I went through that whole journey where two years after that, I ran my first half marathon and I did it in incredible time. And I remember crossing the finish line and the last two years replayed in my mind thinking, how did I get to this point where I could actually achieve this result? And it was because my identity became as a runner.
1: I did something similar with playing racquetball, where I just said, I'm going to go and play racquetball and have fun. So I did that. But then the shift occurred, the change occurred when I started also to setting a goal of, I'm going to improve. Now I am a runner. Now I'm going to improve. So there's the balance between short-term, long-term goals and saying, okay, I'll set for myself achievable goals rather than just setting for myself goals of of which I'll give up on. Yeah. That's a great point. I I think the most important thing is to recognize that you are in many ways, the master of your destiny. You can't control everything. And there are so many things that are beyond our control, but you get to decide what you can control. And that is your thoughts and your emotions. You can't control the people around you. You can't control your boss. You can't control your partner. So focus on yourself, focus on your thoughts, your emotions, the way you perceive yourself, the way you perceive the world around you. And again, I want to make that point. And this was from Carol Dweck's book, Rethinking Positive Thinking. Shift your identity to a growth mindset. I can grow continuously and I can learn and I can enjoy the process, which is what you talked about. Process-based goals versus outcome-based. If I enjoy the process, I'll keep learning
0: and keep getting better and better. And then I can also choose to measure my success. Beautiful. Now, Patrick, you touch on it consistently, and that is the emotions that are holding us hostage right now, which is where this conversation started. So can we return then to those seven emotions? We've covered some already. What are the other seven emotions that are holding us hostage right now?
1: So I've listed seven. There are seven umbrellas of emotion. The first umbrella is fear and anxiety. The second umbrella is sadness, sorrow, and grief. The third umbrella is victimhood. When you feel things are hopeless or helpless or you've got apathy. And victimhood is a huge killer of life because, again, what are you saying? I have no control over anything, not just over the rest, The external, I don't even have control over myself, I'm a constant victim. One of the other emotions that people are experiencing is loneliness. And loneliness is a real physical killer. Being lonely is equivalent to smoking a packet of cigarettes a day. Loneliness has been an epidemic in the US for years, and it's becoming more of a problem in Western culture and more of a problem throughout the world as a result of the pandemic, because we are isolating, withdrawing, shrinking, talking to people, communicating with people only over the internet, over Zoom or over Skype or FaceTime or WhatsApp or whatever way we're choosing to communicate. Yes. And we need physical touch. We need to be able to feel the person. Absolutely. We need to feel someone holding us and embracing us because if something bad happens in life, it doesn't matter whether you're a macho man or whether you're a a a soft, tender woman, everyone needs to be held. And in fact, for fathers who are listening to this, if you have sons, if you want your son to grow up and be more masculine, hug him more often. Wow. Love that. The more that you hug your son, the more comfortable he'll be in his own skin, in his own masculinity, because he can accept affection. He can accept embrace. He's not afraid of his own body or he's not afraid of touch. So, We need to have that physical connection and loneliness is a huge killer. Another one is depression and rumination is part of depression. Rumination is where you're constantly going over things in your head, but you're not making a decision and you're not focused on the solution. You're just constantly griping or venting or complaining or whinging or whining, as we say, and you're not taking decisions. The other one, which is number seven, is anger, frustration, and rage. These are three very different emotions. Anger is the response to feeling hurt, injured, or wronged, or not getting what you want. Mm -hmm. Frustration is when your goal is being thwarted. That means I want to run five miles, but I'm frustrated because every morning it's cold and I can't get up. I'm frustrated. That's some obstacle that's in the way. Or I want to go running every day, but I can't get out of the house because this car's in front of me, for example. That's frustration, something between you and your goal that's preventing you from achieving your goal. Rage is when the level of anger becomes such that it controls you and you want to hurt people, where you actually become vindictive and revengeful. Unfortunately, Liam Neeson apologized for something wrong. I don't know if you're aware of this story, but it was only in the last 12 months, he admitted that something had happened, someone had hurt someone in his family and it happened to be a black person. And so he said, I became really angry at black people and I wanted to just go out and hurt someone that was black. And people went on and attacked him and said he was racist. No, he wasn't. All he was telling you was he's human. And if the person that had attacked his loved one happened to be a dog, he might have gone after dogs. I'll give you an example. There's a better definition. Let's say that you're walking al- along the street and you see a woman being attacked at a bus stop. You quickly jump in to protect her and you're able to fend off two guys. The woman's safe. You used your anger because you had to use anger to fight these two guys to protect her. You weren't going to go in there and say, oh, excuse me, I-, I don't think it's nice that you're hurting this woman and that you're trying to rape her. No, you use anger. You get in there and you become aggressive and you use violence if you have to. Now, here comes the rage part. The woman is safe. The men can't do anything else, and you keep kicking them, and you keep punching them and punching them, even though they can no longer hurt her because they're down on the ground, and maybe you've got them in a headlock, but you keep punching that head. That's rage. Now, these seven umbrellas of emotion that I've just listed were all emotions Mm -hmm. that came to the fore during the pandemic, and they came to the fore during the pandemic because our world was thrown out of control. Insecurity, instabilities, uncertainty, confusion, extreme loss. We didn't know what's going to happen. We felt like everything was out of control. And then we became angry because we had to put on masks or we became angry because we were put on lockdown. We became angry because we couldn't go outside. And then we started thinking, they're just trying to control us. This is not a real pandemic. And then we started to get into rage. Or we started to experience loneliness because we couldn't communicate with people, we couldn't connect with people, we couldn't have dinners, we couldn't have parties. So I put together a whole audio book on neutralize the seven emotions that are holding you hostage right now. And what I did in that was clearly define each of those emotions and then give action steps, how to overcome these emotions when you are experiencing them.
0: Where can we get that audio book, Patrick?
1: It's on my website, Neutralize the Seven Emotions That Are Holding You Hostage Right Now, patrickwonas.com I'm happy to also give the guided meditation as a gift. If someone says, hey, I just bought the audio book and sends an email, I'll gladly give them that as well. No, thank you. I, I think it's really important to recognize that there are ways to control your thoughts and emotions. You're not going to have 100% success. No one does. I don't, even though I teach this stuff. I still have a challenge sometimes. Would you like one quick technique? Please. All right. So here's a technique that's not in the book, but I have shared this with various clients. You, you just recognize that some emotion's coming over you. And the first step is label that emotion. Find out what is that emotion. So rather than saying, I feel blah, what do you actually feel? You go, I feel sad. Then you say, I notice I'm feeling sad. That's interesting. Why am I feeling sad? I'm feeling sad because I can't hang out with my friends and I hang out with Mary and Julie and John and Paul and I remember the good times we had. Okay, that is sad. You talk to yourself, coaching yourself. You coach yourself as if you're a third person. Yes. It's scientifically validated. Now, why does it work if you say, I notice I'm feeling sad? That's interesting. By labeling the emotion has less control of you, number one. Number two... By noticing that you are feeling that emotion, you're recognizing that you can separate yourself from the emotion. You are not the emotion. You are experiencing the results of the emotion, but you're not the emotion. I notice I'm feeling sad. Then instead of reacting to it and throwing petrol on the fire, you cool it down by saying, matter of fact, hmm, that's interesting. Then you ask the exploratory question why am I feeling sad? And you go, I'm feeling sad because I've lost this. This has ended. And you coach yourself and you say, you know what, Patrick, it is sad. And it really is sad. And that is a loss. It makes sense. Now, what can you do about it, Patrick? And you go, I guess I could call up, at least talk to him. I'll feel better talking to him than doing nothing at all. I'll feel better talking to them and telling them what I feel rather than just feeling sorry for myself. One last quick tip. Love it. There is only one emotion which you should not practice venting. You can vent all of the emotions and they'll help. If you are sad, talk to someone when you're sad. If you're feeling like a victim, say to someone you feel like a victim, and hopefully they'll talk you out of it. The one emotion which you do not want to keep venting is anger. The more you vent anger, usually the worse you feel because you're recreating that emotion in you and you're putting your body into the fight or flight response. You're not calming your body down. You're actually telling your body there's a reason to be angry. Keep being angry. So be careful of overventing anger. Say it once to a friend and then pause or let it go. That means recognize, whoa, I don't want the anger to control me and let it go. So be very careful of overventing anger. But all of the other emotions, sadness, fear, anxiety, sorrow, loss, grief, talk to someone who will listen to you as you mentioned earlier in the show, with empathy and compassion.
0: Yeah, so with those other emotions, I guess your message is you need to feel to heal. But with anger, you need to feel it once, recognize it, and not give it any more oxygen.
1: Yeah, exactly, because remember that anger is actually toxic. It is poisonous because it releases more and more adrenaline. Adrenaline is fantastic when you are Sam McCool, the runner, you need the adrenaline. When you're playing cricket or you're playing football, you ought to chase that ball, you ought to kick the ball, you need adrenaline. If you're trying to protect someone, you need adrenaline. When you're in the gym, you need adrenaline. But you don't need adrenaline when you're driving a car unless you are racing. And I don't think usually we're racing. So be very careful because all of those emotions have physical manifestations and reactions in the body. Do not recreate them constantly again and again. And I have a very special process where I help people who've experienced trauma because they're re-experiencing those emotions and those visions.
0: I love that you've recognized those seven emotions and for people that are listening, probably identify with some of those toxic emotions that are holding them back because often people approach identity change or behavioral change or changes in their life that they want to make with having to do something to achieve that in some cases it's not about doing something it's actually about removing the things that are holding you back yes seven emotions that you recognize if they're holding you back once you remove them then you naturally start achieving the change that you want in your life because underneath those seven emotions were some beautiful qualities that you have and that you were born with and some gifts that are allowed to come to the surface. As you were talking, I'm viewing these seven emotions and I'm pushing down with my hands on this Zoom call showing that it's just—it's really dampening down your energy, dampening not just your physical energy, but your emotional, your mental, even your spiritual energy. That gift that you were born with, that genius that we all have that we want to express, but we're not expressing it and we're not releasing that positive energy because of these negative emotions. I really thank you for calling those out. And of those seven emotions, I, I feel like in the world at the moment, we are definitely at the crossroads of a seismic shift in the way humans behave and are allowed to behave. Really one of the biggest tragedies that I see in life and probably what drives you, I see people not living to their full potential. I know that sounds like a cliche, but I I have this curiosity for people. And I think one of the reasons why we are successful at work, because I walk around my office and I have a curiosity for people's potential and the genius that, that is hiding. And my goal is to always bring it out of that person, whether it's someone I work with, whether it's my partner, whether it's my children, my friends, I walk around with this endless curiosity for you know, people's potential. The
1: greatest gift you can give to someone is to actually help them to realize their full potential. I also teach it in the sense of helping someone to be the best version of themselves. Imagine if your focus as a husband or a wife is to help your partner to be the best version of themselves. Wow. It's just another way of saying what you said, helping them to realize their potential. But there's a difference in the way you look at it when you say, how can I help my partner to be the best version of herself? Or himself. himself. Because then you're thinking to do that, I've actually got to get to know that person. And I've got to do what you and I were talking about earlier in in this interview, help them to be themselves. Yes. And they can only be themselves if you're willing to know them, willing to hear them,
0: understand them and validate them. Absolutely. And now that we know the seven emotions that are holding us back, it gives us clarity on how we can help the people around us who may be displaying those seven umbrellas, as you call them. But Patrick, I could talk to you for hours. I feel like I've known you for a long time. I love your approach. Thank you. It's very practical.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Sam. It was sincere. I'm very humbled. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Until next time, live consciously, my friends.